If you have your Bibles, please do open up to Psalm 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a, a black Bible in front of you and the pews in front of you. Uh, it's the ESV translation. I think it's 448 uh, in the black Bibles. If you can turn to Psalm 1 and leave it open there so we consider, we'll consider these verses together. And while you turn there, uh, let me pray for our time. God, we give you thanks that you have given us your word. This time can be a very familiar time for us. If we've come to this church, then preaching is a familiar time. If we know the Bible, then this psalm is a familiar psalm. We pray that you would make this time for us unfamiliar. We pray that you would help us to freshly see you through your word, freshly know you, freshly feel you on our heart. Father, we confess that we have nibbled on so many lesser delights, that we have all but lost appetite for you. We pray in mercy and grace, though we don't deserve it in kindness towards us, that you would revive the taste buds of our heart, that we might again delight in you and in your word. We ask this for Jesus' glory and our joy. Amen. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended in different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This, the will never takes, this is the motive of every action, of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Blaise Pascal wrote that in the 1600s, and if he's right, and I think he is, then what Pascal is asserting is that ultimately what drives us, right? what drives everything we do, every decision that we make, what drives everything that we do is this desire, right? this undeniable, unavoidable, inescapable desire in all of us to be happy. That everything we do, every decision we make, everything about us is driven by this pursuit to be happy. If Pascal is right, then the reason why you eat a cheesecake or don't and eat a salad instead, behind it is a vision of what makes you happy. The reason why a man runs into a burning building to retrieve something or someone, or the reason why he stands at the curb and watches it burn, is because of a vision of or understanding of what brings happiness. Whether through immediate gratification or sacrifices made for long-term gains, happiness stands as a pursuit behind it all. Pascal puts this provocatively, saying, even the reason why a man hangs himself is just to feel a little bit better in his pursuit of happiness. Now, it's been pointed out that Pascal, you'll notice, doesn't assign a moral quality to this reality. Right? He doesn't say that this is a good thing or a bad thing. He just says, this is the way it is. Sort of like gravity. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just the way nature works. So, this is the way the human heart works. The desire to be happy is just natural to the human heart. And if that's true, then the real question comes, what then can make a person truly happy? And here, I want you to know there are no shortages of answers. If you look to Wall Street, they'll tell you it's money. If you look to philosophers like Nietzsche, they'll tell you it's power. If you check out the magazine covers at the checkout line at your local grocery stores, they'll tell you it's having a great body or having great sex. If you watch the commercials on TV, 
it'll tell you it's found in the stuff that you can buy. If you consider the American dream, it'll tell you it's found in success. However you define success. Maybe the house or the white picket fence, a big promotion, a fancy vacation, a nice car, a comfortable nest egg, or whatever it might be. If you talk to a man from the Eastern culture, he'll tell you it's found in relationships, in finding a place of belonging in your family, your community, your society. If you talk, bring in honor and not shame. If you talk to someone from the Western culture, they'll tell you, just remove yourself from all those shackles and just be you, right? You do you. You see, there are no shortages of paths when it comes to our pursuit of happiness. I was listening to a sermon recently, and I was reminded of a man who is familiar with all these paths in his pursuit of happiness, was Solomon. You see, deep down inside, right? if we could be honest, deep down, I really do think we probably would say that money could make us happy. right? If we had enough money, I think it could make me happy. It's just that I don't have enough of it. And if I really did, I think that it could make me happy. And maybe for you it's not money. Maybe it's fame or achievement or accomplishment or pleasure. If I could have an unending stream of pleasure, then I would be truly happy. And here's the thing that the testimony of Solomon would say. Solomon had no limit to all those things. He traveled down the road, down every road you wish you could travel, and when this man, who had no limit, he had more money you could count, he had more women than you could imagine, he had more pleasure than you can possibly consume, he had more achievements that the world still remembers, he had more fame that stretched to the ends of the earth so that people from the ends of the earth were drawn to him. And at the end of every one of these roads, Solomon concludes by saying, it's all meaningless. Meaningless. A chasing after the wind is how he describes it. Meaningless. Meaning... When you drank all that there is for the world to offer, you find that it's been a salt water and you've guzzled down an ocean and you're still dying of thirst. Meaningless. Salt water. This is what the testimony of Solomon would say. While there is no end to our pursuit of happiness, our pleasure, in this midst of cacophony of voices that, we, that clamor for our attention, and the m many paths that we pursue to get happiness, if we would see Psalm 1 is sort of waving us down, saying, would you look here? Psalm 1 is saying, would you give me your ears, and would you see the path to happiness? True happiness is found right here. In fact, Psalm 1 offers such a lofty promise that happiness is attainable for anyone, anywhere, anytime. Irrespective of who you are or what your condition or situation in life is, happiness is at your grasp. That whether you're married, divorced, or single, whether you have a lot in the bank or you're just eking it out, barely making it month by month, whether you, have, you find yourself in great health or declining health, whether you're living in a house in the suburbs with the white picket fence or a studio apartment in the city, whether you are 8 or 88, you can be happy. This is the promise of Psalm 1. And in fact, it's right there in the very first word of the psalm. Happy is a man, or as ESV Bibles we have here translates it, blessed is a man. And those are interchangeable words. Some translations say happy, some say blessed. But this one word captures this rich idea, right? It's, 
it's this idea of a picture of a man who's confident, right? Who's content, who's satisfied. It's a joy-filled man. He's got the stamp of God's approval on his life. It's that rich word. Happy is the first word into the Psalms. And that's important because most commentators would tell you that Psalm 1 isn't randomly placed at the beginning of the Psalms. It's not like they took 150 Psalms, shook it in a bottle, and just pulled this one out. No. But rather, this was purposely placed as the first thing in the Psalms. This is the path to happiness. A path towards blessing. The path to life. So, do you want to be truly happy? Of course you do. We all do. Then Psalm 1 would say, here's the path to happiness. And it begins with some things to avoid. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The path towards happiness for a deep, joy-filled man. This man starts with what the psalm tells us negatively. Right? By some things you want to avoid. That the path to happiness begins by not walking a certain path. He starts by saying, not walking in the counsel of the wicked. That is the principles and the wisdom of the world that stands opposed to God. Not standing in the way of sinners. That's a way of life and the patterns and attitudes that are opposed to God's design. Not sitting in the seat of scoffers. And the word scoffers there sort of describes a sinner at his or her worst, right? Meaning a scoffer just doesn't disobey. A scoffer disdains the things of God, right? He scoffed at the things of God. He mocks the things of God. He thinks the whole thing, God, Bible, church, they're all a big joke to him. He's a scoffer. And blessed is a man who doesn't find himself sitting in the congregation of scoffers. The psalm begins by saying, if you want to be happy, then steer clear of these kinds of attitudes, these kinds of influences, even these kinds of people. Now, preachers have pointed out that there seems to be a progression in these verbs. Did you hear them? The man walks, he stands, sits. You can always picture it in your mind. It's this downhill progression. Here's a man walking by the wicked, but then he stops and he stands with the sinners. And then he pulls up a chair and he takes a seat with the scoffers. And Psalm 1 begins by saying, happy is a man that doesn't go there. Happy is a man who doesn't settle in and who doesn't over time grow more and more comfortable with the attitudes and influences of people that are opposed to God. Now, we should make a note here. We should note that in considering the people of Psalm 1, the influences, the psalm isn't telling us to isolate ourselves from the world. To sort of pull out and pull away and quarantine ourselves from the world, the wicked, bad, nasty world, lest they infect us. Right? The psalm isn't saying that Christians should form bubbles or isolate themselves so they can protect us themselves from the world. And we know that's not the case because of the most blessed and happy man, Jesus himself. You see, if you consider Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry, you'll find that Jesus regularly ate with sinners. He regularly befriended those who were wicked. But Jesus' purpose in doing so was not to be changed by them, but to bring change in them. 
This is why Jesus did what he did. Jesus walked with the wicked so he might call them to walk with him. Jesus stood with the sinners so that one day they might stand firm in their faith in him. Jesus sat with scoffers so that one day they may be seated in the heavenly places with him. Jesus' mission was not to be changed by them, but to bring change in them. And as disciples of Jesus, if we follow him, then the mission he left us, right, to go and make disciples of the world, of all the nations, requires that we do the same. That we do, that we become the same. In some ways, it's sort of like the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. An example my father told me many years ago is a thermometer and a thermostat are very similar, but they do different things, right? A thermometer does what? A, a, uh, yeah, you can say it out loud. Yeah, a thermometer does, it measures the temperature of its surroundings, right? It reflects the temperature of its surroundings. What does a thermostat do? It affects the temperature of its surroundings, right? It changes the temperature of its surroundings. See, one simply reflects the temperature of its surroundings. The other caused change to the temperature of its surroundings. And the difference between Jesus' mission and the man of Psalm 1, 1, is that we are not in the world to be changed by the world, but to be agents of change to it. Whereas one person said, it's like the world is the ocean, and we are the boats. If the boats are in the ocean, then all is fine. But if the ocean gets into the boats, then we sink and all is lost. See, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It's giving you wisdom. And in wisdom, questions you ask yourself are things like, does my life seem like it's directed by the wisdom of God, the principles laid out in his word, or is my life supremely influenced by the wisdom of the world in its ways, in its counsel? These should be the questions that we ask and consider and not just give a pat answer to because we're in church today. When I consider the goals of my life, do they seem to be measured and shaped by God's word or are they reflective of the same goals of the world? When I consider how I think of my time or my treasures or what I value the most, does it seem like it's influenced and shaped by the uh, values of the world or by the word of God? I heard a great lecture by this Christian speaker, and he was saying, if you think about it, every sitcom you watch, right, every movie you'll watch, everything on social media has underneath it some basic principles by which our culture operates. And it's inescapable. It's like skeletons, right? You can't see them, but they're underneath, right? They're undergirding everything. For example, if you were to tease out some of what those skeletons were, right, you'd imagine you'd find values like our culture says, Above everything, you need to be true to yourself, right? Like what we said earlier, you do you. That's what matters the most, more than anything else. And joined with that would be, therefore, you should do whatever makes you feel good. And supporting all of that is another principle that says, and nobody has a right to tell anyone else what's right or what's wrong. Now tell me. Does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like the pool that we all swim in? Like the air that we breathe? 
And someone is pulling us out of the world and saying, let me ask you, what principles shape your life? Influences your worldview? Help you think about how you see the world and what matters and what you value and what you treasure? How am I being shaped? How are my kids being shaped? And listen, to stand out against this narrative, those kinds of principles would feel like you, it's you against the entire world. Right? And then I would want you to know that Psalm 1 would have all the sympathy in the world for you. Because if you notice, look at the numbers that the singular is spoken of in Psalm. Blessed is the man. And contrasting him is the plurality of the wicked. Right? Sinners. Scoffers. It's almost like this one solitary man against the whole world. But Psalm 1 is telling us, listen, you are going to go, you are going to go toward a path of happiness. And there is no happiness, no lasting joy, no fulfillment found in adopting the attitudes and the lifestyle of the world that stand opposed to God. But here's a positive. Instead, and here's how happiness is found in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. New Hope, this verse is so simple, isn't it? You don't need me to dress it up. right? You don't need me to explain it much. It stands right there, black and white. Psalm 1 is saying to you unabashedly, without qualification, without hesitation, without any reservation, Psalm 1 is declaring the happiest people on the planet are those who love their Bibles. They are not the people that, who walk in the way of verse 1, but rather they are the people who delight in the law of the Lord and they meditate on it day and night. When you hear the word meditation, don't be thinking Eastern meditation where you strike a certain pose and you seek to empty your mind and you mindlessly chant Om. You see, Christian meditation is not to empty the mind, but to fill the mind to saturate the mind to overflowing, to call onto the mind over and over again the truths of God until it overflows. You see, this happy man takes God's word and he meditates on it day and night. And the word meditate is literally like the word mutter. Right? He muttered God's word to himself. It's on his mind, it's in front of his eyes, it's on his lips. This is what the blessed man does. I've heard it put this way. If this is the only preaching you hear this week, then you are missing out on good preaching. Because the best preaching you'll hear this week is your own soul speaking the scriptures to your own heart. It's your own voice that's going to be the best preaching you'll hear this week. Not this 45 minutes from this man on this Sunday afternoon. The best preaching you'll hear this week is as you mutter God's word back to your own heart. When condemnation comes on Tuesday, when, when it comes because Satan is whispering and pointing out the flaws in your life, then you growl and you mutter Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Or when Satan whispers to you, you growl and you mutter 1 John when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. When fear comes by Thursday night, then you grutter and you mutter, Psalm 56. 
When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. When anxiety comes, you say to your heart, therefore, do not be anxious about what you'll eat, or what you'll drink, or what you'll wear. The God who feeds the ravens and clothes the lilies, he cares for you. And you hope you recall God's word and his promises. You preach to your own heart. You see, the path to happiness in Psalm 1 is through the pages of scriptures on your own lap. And to be happy means you read the Bible like college Joel read text messages from Cynthia. And some of you here don't know. Cynthia's my wife, not just some woman. Uh, when we had just started to date, I remember Cynthia would te- uh, send me text message- messages that were probably the equivalent of five pages in length. And do you know what I did? I read it and reread it and reread it. I poured over every word and every comma. I tried to read under the lines and through the lines and over the lines. I tried to look at it, see it, extract everything I can from it. Why? I delighted in those words. Why? Because I delighted in the one who wrote those words. And Psalm 1 is saying, do you delight in God's word? And if you don't delight in God's word, then my answer to you is not just discipline. Get at it, try harder. But rather to ask you, has your love for God grown cold? And listen, that might be where Psalm 1 leaves you tonight. Psalm 1 may have you come this far and stop right now in your soul and confess to the Lord, the love of my heart has seemed to grow cold towards you. Would you this evening breathe embers on them again? Would you allow them to glow? Would you let fire blaze? That I might delight in you again. And I hope these are the things that we need to repent of. In small group, uh, Nigel has shared about this man many times. Uh, if, if you've heard of this man, his name's uh, George Mueller. And one thing that Nigel had shared about George Mueller cut my heart afresh, still remember it. George Mueller, he's this man over in Europe who started this orphanage many years ago. And there are stories that you wouldn't believe, right? Stories like they needed bread one morning and he would pray and there would be a knock on the door the next morning and there will be bread for the entire orphanage, right? Those kinds of stories. These heroes of the faith. But what I want you to hear, what George Mueller said in his autobiography. He said this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great primary business of my life that I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how, how, much I, how I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul happy in the Lord, that my inner man might be nourished. Isn't that something that Mueller, Mueller is unashamedly saying, I wanted happiness. Right? Happiness was the first thing in the morning on his mind. And here's what he did. Now I saw 
the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of God's word and meditate on it. That thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus whilst meditating, my heart may be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. This, uh, the result of this is that my inner man almost invariably, meaning I could feel it, not just a dry concept in my head, I could almost feel it that I was nourished, strengthened, and by breakfast time, with rare exceptions, I am in a peaceful, if not happy, state of heart. What cut me afresh was not that what you normally expect, that, hey, this man woke up every morning and read his Bible. There's that. But what cut me was that this man was unashamedly after happiness for his soul. And this man knew that God was the source of this happiness. And therefore, this man poured over the pages of the Bible, and he did so every morning until his heart was happy in God, so that he may face whatever trials and temptations that may come that day. God was for George Mueller not just a dry concept in his heart, in his head, not even a doctrine in his heart to be believed in, but a person that he delighted in. New Hope, could we not testify back and forth to each other through the pages of this book, how God has met us time and time again. I can tell you how God met me in 1 Corinthians 15, this chapter about the resurrection. I was struck by the physicality of the resurrection. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he did so bodily with flesh and bone that you can touch. And my heart began to see the future that awaits the Christian. It isn't this ghost-like, poke-through-you existence. But it's solid and real. So much so, when my dad died, I remember looking into the casket. And the thought about every other thought in that hour of sorrow was this deep, abiding joy that I will see my dad again. I will hold his arm. I will embrace him. We will not be two ghosts that bump into each other. I will see my dad more solid than I've ever seen him before. And in the worst sorrow, there was this happiness, this profound, unshakable joy. I can tell you a time when I heard a pastor preach a sermon on tithing. He was preaching, and he started talking about 2 Corinthians 8. And I want you to know, till that point, I had heard all this gospel-centered jargon, right? I heard that uh, everything is connected to the gospel. The gospel is central to everything. I heard all that jargon, and I had no idea what it meant. And here's this man, and he's about to preach on tithing. That is, to give your money to God. And in my simple mind, it was a simple sermon. Right? Just tell us that God commanded us to do it, and we do it. I only saw law. I had no idea how he was going to get the gospel in. And he said, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And for the first time in my life, the light bulbs went off. That even how I give was shaped, I give was shaped by how God gave Jesus to me. That he became poor so I can become rich. That unlocked my heart towards generosity. So for the first time in my life, I understood gospel centrality on a sermon about tithing. Because God met me in the pages of this book. Nothing has brought my life more meaning, more substance, more depth 
been understanding how Jesus' death and resurrection, it connects to everything. And God wants, hear this, left to ourselves, we would be chasing fleeting pleasures. We would drink up an ocean of salt water and die of thirst. We would be hollow, superficial people. But God wants for us to be people of deep roots, right? with a joy that cannot be taken away, people that are solid and full of substance. In fact, that's what he says in the next verse. Let me walk with you uh, real quick. And then He says, Blessed is a man who doesn't operate as the world does, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. He is, verse 3, like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The picture of, is of this solid, sturdy, fruitful, lasting tree, right? And that image becomes more effective when it's contrasted with what comes next in verse 4. That's what the psalm's doing, right? He's building a contrast. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. And the psalmist is saying, listen, whereas the wicked are like chaff, the righteous man, the blessed man, the happy man, he's like a tree planted by water. He bears fruit. His leaf does not wither. He prospers in all that he does. Now, I should make a quick note here. When the psalmist says he prospers in all that he does, it can sound like that stuff on TV, that there's prosperity for all of God's people, that if you become a Psalm 1 person, then you'll have sunshine and rainbows the rest of your life. All you would have to do is read Psalm 2 and Psalm 3 and Psalm 4, and you'll see that this blessed man doesn't seem to have an invincible life. In fact, one-third of the Psalms are laments that are saying, God, where are you? Why is my life like this? I'm getting kicked in the teeth and you're doing nothing. The psalmist is not naive or glib, but instead he's saying, the person who's a Psalm 1 person, they are like tree that have deep roots, that circumstances can't uproot it. In fact, even the image here, did you notice the word seasons? It's like a tree that bears fruit in its seasons. Meaning what? Meaning that sometimes it'll be spring and sometimes it'll be winter. Sometimes there'll be sunshine, but sometimes there'll be rain and fierce storms and hurricane winds. In your mind, if you can picture a palm tree in Florida, right? If you've seen these videos, right, these hurricane winds, the hurricane winds blows against it, right? And that tree, it bends, but it does not break. That's the Psalm 1 person. Lost my place, but I'm sorry. You see, there's a joy abiding in them. That though the circumstances of life are hard and are rough, they can't be uprooted. Now, when you consider the contrast in verse 4, the wicked, they're not like that. The wicked are chaff that the wind drives away. And I know I said chaff a couple of times, and I'm going to say it a little more. You know what chaff is? Chaff, I remember. Being in India, uh, there's they, the way they would sift it out, they, they have this big basket, right, this rectangular square-looking thing. And what they would do is they'd have all this grain in this basket, right? And they would constantly shake the basket, and they'll throw the grain up in the air. And the, the chaff, the husk, the straw would fly away from the breeze, but the heavy seed and kernel will fall down into the basket, right? And they would keep doing this, and you would see all this fleety, 
light, ephemeral, straw-like chaff just fly away, but the seed would fall down. And when you think of chaff, the words that come to mind are not sturdy, strong, bend, not break, fruitful. No, when you think of chaff, you think of useless, rootless, worthless. It's lifeless. A simple breeze drives it away. See, the wicked are not like trees. They are like chaff, chaff that the wind drives away. And if you would object to that, if you say, hey, look, I look around and it doesn't seem like the wicked are like that, then Psalms themselves would tell you, I know. Read Psalm 73. Asaph would tell you, God, I'm looking around and it seems to me that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are being blown away. But Psalm 1 starts by saying, don't start at the ground view. Don't start at the worm's eye view. Start at the bird's eye view. 30,000 feet up in the air. Step back and see the big picture. And here's the big picture. The righteous may be momentarily sad, but they will be eternally happy. But the wicked? The wicked may be momentarily happy, but they will be eternally sad. They may be for a moment here looking like they're invincible, but the last day will show them what they are. They are straw men. They are chaff. Therefore, verse 5 and 6, the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, in the end, they have no standing place with God or God's people. And they will hear the words that are most dreaded to hear, that Jesus warned that the wicked would hear. Depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know your ways. I don't know who you are. I don't know you. But not so the righteous. Verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So New Hope, we stand in the front of Psalm 1 at the front door into the psalms. And it's almost as if the psalm is saying, before you sing the 149 that come after, before you step into these doors, through this path, who are you? Which are you? Are you tree or are you a chaff? And I want you to know in Jesus' preaching, he'll present the same things to you. If you look at Matthew 25, Jesus will say, are you sheep? talking about the righteous, are you goats, talking about the wicked. In fact, in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it starts exactly like Psalm 1 does. Blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Nine times in the beginning of his sermon, he starts with happy. Blessed are those. And here is a sermon on the vision of happiness. And what does Jesus do in his sermon? In his sermon? He does what Psalm 1 does. He presents contrast. Are you a fruitful tree? Are you a barren tree? There's a wide road that leads to destruction and narrow that leads to life. There's a man who built his house upon sand and it fell apart. There's one who built it on a rock and it lasted. Which are you? Are you on the wide path or the narrow path? And as you enter into the Psalms, you have to answer that question. And the good news is, God can change you, right? If you are chaff, I want you to know he can make you a tree. 
That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that now we are now in Christ. And those who are in Christ are a new creation. He changes species. He takes chaff and he changes them to trees. In fact, in verse 3, I want you to know there's a hint of that. Because it says, they are like trees planted by it. It doesn't say the tree grew up on its own. It just happened to grow by a stream of water. What a great tree. No. It says, the word there is literally transplanted as if somebody took that tree from a dry, arid place and planted it by a stream of water. And the Bible would say, that somebody is God. That God alone is the one who takes chaff and arid, barren trees and plants them by water and makes them eternally happy. So then, Jesus can change you. He can change us. The question is, which of these are you? Are you barren or are you planted by streams of water? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that allows us to see the most glorious thing, your son Jesus, and tells us of the most glorious thing that he could have done for our lives. That is to come into this world to live a sinless life and to die on a cross, to be buried for three days, and then to rise again so that we would have life in that abundant. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go and convict us to see the path that we are traveling in. And Father, would it convict us to be drawn closer to you, to be drawn closer and shaped by your word, that we would bring you joy and our souls would find true happiness in the one true God. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is newhopenyc. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.